This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to unpack trends, technologies, topics of importance, and any story of consequence that is shaping the larger energy and oil and gas industries. If you are tapping into today's episode, you're actually listening to a part two conversation. So probably going to want to give this a pause. If you haven't listened to part one, go listen to part one and then jump back into today's episode. With today's part two of two, we're going to be concluding and continuing our conversation with Daniel Rojo and Dan Cole, who are both managing directors of Opportune Partners. And they're on the podcast to uh, continue their discussion on the state of A&D and M&A in the oil and gas industry. Uh, We've been discussing some of the macro factors that are shaping these trends in oil and gas, including the state of the economy, shifts in interest rates, etc. We're going to pick back up where we left off and continue those discussions. And I'm pleased to re-welcome our host for today's episode. It's not me. You're just getting me for the intro. I'm passing off the torch to my colleague here, Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralphie Davis, an opportune company. Steve, great to have you back on hosting part two of the conversation. How are you doing? Hey, thanks a lot, Daniel. Well, it's great to be back with you, Dan and Daniel. So without further ado, let's just jump right back into the conversation where we were when we left off with part one. We talked a little bit about sellers and kind of some of the things that might be going through their minds. Um, let's kind of switch over to the buyers who um, and think about, uh, well, let's start, you know, who are the buyers in the market? I, I know there, there are a lot, but maybe we can generalize a little bit. Uh, about the nature of the buyer and, and and really maybe more so what are they if you're in the market looking to buy assets today what are you on the lookout for so daniel any any thoughts on those sure um just at a very high level um coming out of 2020 and early 21 i'd say buyers are certainly back in the market with a slightly different flavor right you still very much have the strategics that are actively looking to consolidate their respective basins, whether it's a multi-basin strategy. Uh, Devin comes to mind buying you know, the Rimrock position in the Williston, as well as a Validus position, the Eagleford, or whether it's a pure play strategy, right? Folks like EQT trying to consolidate you know, Appalachia and, uh, and Marcellus and Utica specifically. And so strategics are still very much in the hunt. And as I mentioned earlier, inventory and the quality of that inventory is going to be hypercritical as to whether or not they engage on the buy side or at a specific situation. Uh, you have a lot of private capital um, that continues to be raised. Um, the overall quantum of capital is certainly lower than I'd say five, eight years ago. But thematically, what we're hearing from sponsors is that LPs are starting to come back around. And we've had a few successful fundraises in 2022 and a number of sponsors that are planning on hitting the road in 2023 uh, looking to raise new funds, which is great. From a sponsor standpoint, they do have multiple strategies that they're looking to deploy. And as the industry continues to, to mature and we've We've heard the cliche around drill and flip model. I think it's largely accepted that that model is really no longer 
uh, relevant. And so as the industry matures, private capital is looking for opportunities to deploy that capital and generate the rates of return that they're certainly looking to reward their LPs with. And again, that generally looks something like a high teens, low 20% rate of return on a risk adjusted basis. And so as we're thinking about and as we're seeing them engage with the market, uh, we're seeing you know, PDP weighted strategies emerge. I mentioned Kane Anderson uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, Wincorum is a name that has been very active on buying gas weighted production. Uh, you saw ICAV, which is backed by a European conglomerate uh, purchase Shell and Exxon's position in California and on down the list. And so, although private equity is still underwriting to that high teens, low 20% rate of return, they're still having success buying uh, production and cash flow. One of the other things I think has emerged, and, and Dan can certainly supplement my, some of my comments here, but one of the things that's emerged is just the willingness to provide more structured capital in the absence of just regular way private equity opportunities. Uh, we saw Post Oak as a good example of that come into the uh, preferred, not the preferred equity, into a pipe around the Earthstone at Chisholm acquisition, the Delaware Basin. Uh, we're seeing increasing conversation around not necessarily drill codes, but putting capital to work and getting more exposure to development economics versus trying to buy a larger position and on down the list. And so the one thing, if there's a common theme is sponsors on the buy side are certainly flexible in the way that they're coming into certain situations. Yeah, I'd say, you know, not just on the equity side and creativity there, you've obviously seen a lot of uh, creativity on the on the debt side, right? It was, you know, four years ago, we saw the first oil and gas securitization, and we're seeing many more operators turn to that as a source of liquidity for PDP heavy assets, right? Obviously, as the the shale basins continue to mature, you've got to find a home for the vast amounts of production. And, and obviously, you can hold in cash flow. But to the extent there's uh, private equity looking to exit at the end of fund life, there's some mechanics whereby, you know, alternative debt solutions are coming coming more into vogue. You, you saw a number of dividend recaps uh, in late 2020 into 2021 in the high yield market, which which was obviously killed uh, largely due to, you know, rising interest rates. Uh, and so you've seen it somewhat replaced with uh, with securitization product being broadly applied to PDP heavy assets. When we were talking a moment ago a little bit about, you know, PDP heavy assets, Dan, any, um, you know, a lot of different types of PDP assets, you seeing any uh, particular uh, favorites or maybe some things that you know are still not really in vogue um, from across a unconventional conventional oil gas onshore offshore um, any thoughts on that so you know I'm a firm believer that you know production is production right uh, whether it's conventional or unconventional however there are certain characteristics that tend to be associated with conventional fields that may make them less desirable, right? Typically, they're later in their life. They have higher fixed costs, higher lifting costs. Uh, and obviously, that's all baked into the valuation. But, you know, having the tighter margins is something that buyers do consider. There's typically 
on legacy uh, conventional fields, large amounts of idle well bores, which can produce, uh, you know, a P&A liability that the operator will have to take into consideration and, and do. Uh, buyers do take into consideration. You, you may also have very complex facilities that result in a significant ARO and, you know, 30 to 50 years of operations, which may or may not have some legacy environmental liabilities, right? And, and shale assets, as a virtue of their relative nascence, tend to not have that much air around them, right? So all things created equal, you know, a PDP-heavy shale asset like the Barnett is probably more appealing than a, you know, low-decline East Texas oil field asset, but, you know, where 50 wells are, 50% of the wells are producing, 50% of the wells are idle, right? Um, and so, you know, what, what I see the story around PDP assets and where valuation fall, it's about asset characteristics. There's certain as, you know, aspects of that asset that are more attractive and will lead to a lower discount rate. There's other characteristics that are obviously less attractive to buyers and tend to lead towards a smaller buyer pool, which ultimately uh, manifests in a, uh, a, a more aggressive discount rate being applied to those cash flows. Okay, great. You know, one of the things you guys were uh, talking about was some of the the new structures that are involved and, and maybe some new new private equity funds way of thinking and new debt side way of thinking. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I've seen a lot of this, uh, some of these new ideas as well. And it seems to me right now, it, it's almost been as active in terms of new ideas from a financial standpoint or financing standpoint, as I, I can recall in quite a while. And I wonder, you know, the, the part of the story I've heard about uh, our industry over the last, let's call it three years, five years has been the uh, lack of capital availability. And, and to some degree, that probably led to the free cash flow model. Do you all feel, um, I'll, I'll start with you, Daniel, that the industry still is suffering from a lack of capital or have new structures, new players found their way in and now it's there if you know where to look? Generally speaking, I'd say the latter. Um, it's there if you know where to look. Now, all that said, as you might imagine, there's a number of of nuances to the question, um, beginning with the RBL side of things. Um, coming from a, a large bank, um, again, with, with degrees of freedom here, but there's generally been a focus and an emphasis within the larger institutional banks to focus on kind of core strategic clients. And having learned lessons from the past, not completely leaving the middle market space, but it being a less uh, a point of, of less emphasis in terms of where they're trying to put their balance sheet to work. And so if you're a, a producer that's looking for, let's just say a hundred to $200 million facility, it may be a little bit more difficult to put that syndicate together than it was in four or five years ago, just the overall number of banks that are still involved in the RBL market are fewer than, than there were four or five years ago. On the private equity side, again, similarly, I'd say the overall quantum of capital has come down. You know, we put together charts and slides, and I, I have a vivid recollection of a slide that we had in our deck probably, you know, five to six years ago where we could identify upwards of $80 billion of private equity, dry powder available and ready to be deployed. You know, that number today, I'd say, is probably closer to 20 to 30 billion. 
But at the same time, you know, the need for that capital has also come down as, again, a general comment, as producers have really turned the corner, balance sheets are much, much healthier than they've been in a long, long time. Uh, from a public company perspective, you know, debt to EBITDA metrics are well south of two times on average, with many producers pointing to certainly sub one and targeting no leverage um, and not too, in the not too distant future. And so having to draw on that capital is just less acute than it was you know, five, six, seven years ago as we've turned the corner, and not only from a balance sheet health perspective, but also a lot of the capital that's being generated, uh, given where we are in the commodity price cycle, uh, can certainly be reinvested with it without having to tap into the equity or the debt markets to help fund that incremental development. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, I think we're about getting close to the end of our time. So I wanted to give each of you all a chance to um, maybe to make, you know, if you'd like, make any sort of predictions about how you see the market next year um, uh, versus historical terms. Maybe there's uh, certain aspects you expect to be robust, others perhaps not. But, you know, any any sort of uh, final words you'd like to leave the audience? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll take that one first. Um so if history is any guide, I mean, 2022, we're almost through the end of the year. We're at about 60 transactions, announced transactions year to date. Um, and that generally comps, if you eliminate 2020 as a slight aberration, the market um, is certainly a, a down tick relative to 100 plus deals that uh, was historically characteristic of the A&D market. And I suspect that that's really going to be the status quo going forward, just less deal velocity, um, largely by virtue of the fact what we talked about earlier in terms of hold cases, really dominating and being the driving factor as to whether or not you know, sponsors, private producers, public companies decide to hold or monetize their investments. A lot of the catalysts that used to be prevalent in the A&D market, whether it was raising capital to delever whether it was selling assets to raise capital to reinvest in other portions of the portfolio. Um, not too long ago, folks were selling assets to become, you know, pure play Permian, pure play Appalachia, pure play Williston. And that's just not really the, the model going forward, right? It really is just about cash flow and yield. Um, and in that conversation, assets are somewhat fungible, right? It just comes down to capital efficiency and operating margins, which I think ultimately tampers the overall deal flow uh, in the market. But the good thing is there is a willingness, there is an appetite, there is depth to the buy side. I can tell you in some of the processes that we've run over the course of the last year, very healthy statistics in terms of participants, both on the public and the private side. Uh, very healthy response from lenders looking to put capital to work and deploy their balance sheet in support of these acquisitions. But ultimately, the current dynamics in the market, both the volatility, backwardation, inflation, interest rates, continue to make it challenging trying to bridge some of the bid ask. And in the event that we have a little bit of a stabilization to the market, I think it'll, it'll make for a much more active market, but certainly not going back to the, I certainly don't predict going back to that 100, 120 plus 
type of market that was prevalent in the you know, 2016, 2017, 2018 timeframe. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that and, and just say, you know, there's fewer uh, chess players on the board, right? You've seen a pretty material um, consolidation in terms of number of companies, you know, over the last five years to, you know, a level where, you know, we're, we're at a we're at an all time low. Now, obviously, the barrels being produced are still there. They're just concentrated in larger operators, right? But that, I mean, that mirrors the cash flow model. To optimize and maximize cash flow, you're you're going to drive businesses to scale, right? So, you know, I think you'll continue to see, um, you know, bolt-on transactions, aggregation, uh, mergers, uh, and and anytime that happens, though, right? There, there's typically a shedding of non-core assets, right? So, you know, does the crystal ball say, you know, volume goes up or down or, or more or less? Um, you know, I'm largely agree with Daniel that, that we're probably going to trend along uh, the current trajectory that we're on. And, and there's really, you know, barring oil running to $200 a barrel or something like that, there's, there's, there's no material catalyst uh, that I see on the horizon to really drive volumes back to call it you know, 2014 levels. Got it. Well, that, that's excellent. That's excellent insight. And uh, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. I want to thank both of you all for the conversation today. Very informative. Uh, I hope we have a chance to visit again later next year. We'll see how things are turning then. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Daniel. And thanks again to Steve for hosting today's episode of the show. And thank you to our other two Daniel guests. Just been a Daniel full episode here on E2B. Again, we've been hearing from Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralph E. Davis, an opportune company and the host of today's episode, as well as Daniel Rojo and Dan Cole. We're both managing directors of opportune partners. I hope, folks, that you learn something fresh about the current state of A&D and M&A in the oil and gas industry and can now apply some of these perspectives to your day-to-day -day work and better maneuver some of the uncertainties of the market. And that'll be it for today's episode of the show. Thank you again for tuning in. And if you like what you heard and you want to uh, listen to or watch previous episodes, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com. And make sure that you're subscribing to E2B Energy to Business on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. Mm -hmm.